You're listening to the Do Justice Podcast, exploring faith, meeting the world, from Shining Waters Regional Council of the United Church of Canada. Welcome to our Epiphany episode of Do Justice the Podcast. My name is Brianne Swan, my pronouns are she and her, and I am Minister for Social and Ecological Justice and Network Support with Shining Waters Regional Council, part of the United Church of Canada. I am recording from my office in what is now known as Toronto, Ontario which has been a site of human activity for more than 15,000 years. This land is the territory of the Huron-Wendat and Petun First Nations, the Seneca, and most recently the Mississaugas of the Credit River. The territory was the subject of the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, an agreement between the Iroquois Confederacy and the Confederacy of the Ojibwe and Allied Nations to peaceably share and care for the resources around the Great Lakes. Toronto is still home to many Indigenous peoples from across Turtle Island, and I am grateful to have the opportunity to work in the community and on this territory. I am also mindful of broken covenants and the need to strive to make right with all our relations. Shining Waters Regional Council is also an affirming ministry within the United Church. What this means is that Shining Waters is explicit in its embrace and affirmation of those within queer communities. Lesbian, gay, straight, bisexual, transgendered, cisgendered, non-binary, two-spirit, and more— We are all of these and understand this diversity as a blessing. Last year for Epiphany, we featured a story about an art installation created and hosted by East End United Regional Ministry. This week's episode features a reunion of some who participated in a pilgrimage to the provocative nativity scene and excerpts of a discussion about the influence of the art piece, as well as how COVID has affected refugees attempting to enter Canada. But before we get into that, like so many of you last Wednesday afternoon, I watched with perhaps not surprise, but dismay, as terrorists stormed the Capitol building in Washington, which contained senators and members of Congress, counting electoral votes, preparing to certify Joe Biden as the President of the United States. As the images of men and women in mega hats and banners began to flood the airwaves and social media streams, it was hard not to imagine how a similar scene with Black Lives Matter supporters would have ended. 
Instead, pro-Trump supporters, emboldened and egged on by their hero and president, broke into offices, stole hard drives, vandalized desks, and wreaked havoc over elected officials and staff. In the end, five people are dead, one of them shot by police, and one of them a police officer killed in the line of duty. But did any of you notice the Jesus signs on the Capitol steps? The signs that said, Jesus saves and Jesus 2020. As if they would have condoned the values that the actions of this mob were based upon. Now I want to be clear, I don't mean to suggest any sort of simple equation between what is moral and what is legal. Jesus himself died a criminal. The crucifixion is a political act. But these extremist Trump supporters have condoned a president who has been caught on tape admitting to sexually assaulting women, who attempted to ban Muslims from entering the United States, who separated children from their parents as refugee families fled violence in Central America, who refused to condemn white supremacists, who has openly mocked people with disabilities, who knowingly claimed over and over again that the election was conducted fraudulently despite no verified evidence to support him, and who sat back and watched on television, reportedly in glee, as his words and his actions caused people to be harmed and killed. And in that crowd, those signs, Jesus saves, Jesus 2020, Jesus imagined to be aligned with a movement largely based within white supremacy, xenophobia, and American exceptionalism. I don't know what Jesus the folks holding these signs are worshipping, but it is not the Jesus I see in the Gospels. This is one of the problems when we do not understand the contexts out of which our sacred texts have emerged. When Christians read the Gospels, we are reading accounts of Jesus' life that were written by and for those who were living within the occupation of the Roman Empire. But nearly 2,000 years later, far away in North America, Christians are not persecuted by the state for being Christians. Christians are not disenfranchised by the state because of their religious beliefs or practices. Nearly every president of the United States has publicly identified as a Christian. And the two who did not Abraham Lincoln and Thomas Jefferson, fun fact, were raised within the Christian faith. Christianity is now the religion of empire, and yet our scriptures, if one imagines that they are solely for those of us living here and now, read as if Christians are under threat, feeding into this idea that a subset of white evangelical Christians hold that they need to support measures such as violently taking over the Capitol building. 
The violence may have been on full display last week, but it is a sentiment that has been going on for a while. And it's not only in the United States. It's pretty easy to just point a judgmental finger at our neighbors to the south and feel as if we are somehow immune to what is going on. But those of us who live in Canada have our own demons to wrestle with. The ongoing treatment of Indigenous peoples. Ongoing systemic racism. Ongoing poverty. Ongoing destruction of the natural world. And there is a version of Christianity which is festering here that mirrors what we saw at the Capitol. It is dangerous. And Christians who are serious about loving our neighbor, I think we really need to step up and be clear that make America great again Christianity, this really, really toxic Christianity, is wrong. We need to do this more explicitly, more publicly. I'm not talking about condemning different understandings about the authority of scripture or sacraments or Trinitarian theology, but rather rising to a point that is visible and explicitly calling out the use of Jesus's name in ways that are dangerous and cause real harm. Because the kind of violence that we saw last week, and at least the Jesus that I see in our sacred stories, they do not line up.
Hi, this is Anne Hoganson in Halifax, Nova Scotia, out by the Stanfield International Airport. I'm reading from the Gospel named for Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise ones from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising, and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise ones and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, Bring me word so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out. And there ahead of them, with the star that they had seen and its rising, and it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then, opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. Hi there, this is Reverend Alexa Gilmore, and I am reading Matthew 2, 13 to 18 today. In the background, you may hear the music that my children fall asleep to. It's Raffi, every night, poignant given the reading. When the Magi had departed, an angel from the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up! Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod will soon search for the child in order to kill him. Joseph got up and during the night took the child and his mother to Egypt and he stayed there until Herod died. And this fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, I have called my son out of Egypt. When Herod knew that the Magi had fooled him, he grew very angry. He sent soldiers to kill all the children in Bethlehem and in all the surrounding territory who were two years old and younger, according to the time that he'd learned from the Magi. And this fulfilled the word spoken through Jeremiah the prophet. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and much grieving, Rachel weeping for her children, and she did not want to be comforted because they were no more.
store has essentially been closed for almost nine months. Like it's one thing to put in an emergency order that lasts one or two months, but nine months later, like we need to figure out a way to welcome asylum seekers, like welcome refugee claimants into our country and quarantine them. Like it's not that difficult. Last December, the Reverend Michiko Baunkai and their colleague Jane Sandon created an art installation outside of East End United Regional Ministries' Eastminster campus. A brown baby Jesus, enclosed in a barbed wire fence, entirely alone and wrapped in a foil emergency blanket. The provocative art piece, displayed on a busy sidewalk in downtown Toronto, invited holiday shoppers to take a moment and think about the nativity, the story of Christ's birth, and the Holy Family's subsequent flight to Egypt within the context of the refugee crisis unfolding at the U.S.-Mexico border. Children separated from their parents, Families fleeing violence, detained in deplorable conditions. And in response, friends from Romero House, which is a community and charity that welcomes refugee claimants, as well as a delegation who had visited the Mexican border that fall, made a pilgrimage to visit this baby Jesus in a cage. This pilgrimage was featured in last year's Epiphany episode. Last month on December 11th, the Reverend Michiko Baunkai, the Reverend Alexa Gilmore, and Executive Director of Romero House Jennifer McIntyre came together once again via Zoom to talk about the impact of the art installation one year later. And in an era of covid what has changed, or perhaps what has not changed, for those who seek asylum in Canada. These are some of the excerpts from their conversation. One of the, one of the gifts of last year's um, nativity was the idea of taking the story to the streets and disrupting the narrative. And what we've done this year is to commission a um, an artist, Karina Garcia, who came to Canada eight years ago as a refugee herself, and to create a Canadian nativity who's, um, who, who's there to help us reflect on what it means to welcome and it, to reflect on issues of power and privilege and who we imagine bears the light of the world and, and who we sort of privilege and centralize in our storytelling. So for us, it was important to think about that um, as we commissioned this piece. And what came of that is our Joseph is black. 
and our Mary is Mestiza, which is um, indigenous uh, Sephardic uh, Mexican roots. And uh, Mary, who is at the end of the pregnancy, is feeling the limitations of the body that many of us do. And so rather than being on a donkey, which is one of the traditional ways we see her, uh, Mary's getting the freedom of movement by being in a wheelchair. And so out of last year's nativity of, of disrupting stories and uh, inviting conversations on the streets um, has come a new nativity this year that is traveling through the west end of town and inviting people into, into new conversations about hospitality and welcome. This is so exciting to hear about, Alexa, because when I'm thinking back on what we learned last year, um, part of the sort of reflections that we got from community was a bit around process and who was involved in creating the art and what it means to tell stories, um, especially stories that aren't our own. So I think um, the idea to see, you know, moving forward to engage with this idea of a crash and to say, okay, like, like let's commission an artist who can figure out a way of, you know, telling maybe a bit of their story in the work that's done, I think, uh, shows some learning from last year's experience. And I also appreciate this because some of the more sort of pessimistic feedback we got was like, oh, you know, this church is just trying to be trendy, but, uh, you know, so many other churches have already done this art, um, you know, sort of saying that it didn't really matter, but, um, I think it just goes to show how important it is to continue to engage in the story and to reimagine it and to have, um, to understand that our faith is so influenced by who we share stories with and which context we're imagining the story. Well, the most significant thing is that the numbers have almost ground to a halt. And so the people who we are seeing these days at Romero House are 99% people who have been in Canada since before the pandemic started. So our borders have almost completely closed. I say almost, but they mostly have closed. So people can't fly into Canada unless they're permanent residents or citizens or meet one of the very tight exceptions and people can only cross the border from the United States if they meet an exception to the safe third country. So those numbers are extremely low. It's like a handful every week. And so the border has been completely closed off to anyone who's in the United States who wants to come to Canada to make a refugee claim but doesn't have a close family member in Canada or isn't an unaccompanied minor. So, I mean, last year, like tens of thousands of people walked irregularly across the border because staying in the U.S. wasn't safe for them. But they, because of the safe third country, they weren't able to come to Canada through a regular port of entry. So none of those people are making it to our country. So right now, Canada has has an order in council that has essentially sealed off the border from people coming from the United States and they're being directed back into the country with supposedly an assurance from border patrol in the United States that they won't be detained. But we know of, of many cases of people who are without status in the United States who have been detained and even last week someone who was deported after being in detention. So essentially our country is in a place where we're deciding 
that we are going to sacrifice protection and human rights because of the pandemic and sort of have entered into a place where we feel like we have to choose between those two things. And so we're seeing very, very few people who are newly arriving into Canada and making refugee claims. And the thing is, like, in the pandemic, you know, violence doesn't end, domestic violence doesn't end, political activism doesn't end, civil war doesn't end. So there's not, like, it's not like around the world everyone's just gone into their houses and and all persecution has ended. Like, there's still such a great need for protection. how much for me it's been about sort of just um, exposing what already was Um, you know the forces that had you know that led to the creation of the art piece last year you know are still the same forces in play Um, if anything they've intensified or revealed themselves further in terms of the type of evil that it is Um, I'm just thinking about the ways in which you know we saw the ways that um, people that were held in detention weren't given proper PPE, were not, um, you know, given those opportunities to socially distance in any ways um, as information about how the, you know, virus spread was being made available. Um, You know, and that we are still hearing stories, um, you know, recently there was accounts of like forced sterilizations uh, happening at these detainment centers as well. So, um, you know, COVID or not, a lot of these things are just uh, ongoing. So often it's those like, migrant populations or refugee populations that are, are blamed for things like the spread of COVID. Like in the United States, the, the head of the CDC has issued this, this order, the expulsion order, to prevent any migrants, asylum seekers coming in to the United States under the pretext that like, they don't want more people coming into detention. I th- find that so fascinating. It's with the presumption that everybody will be detained, but coming into detention and spreading COVID even more because there's been so much COVID in the ICE detention centers. But really there's been COVID in the ICE detention centers because these centers are like centers of human rights abuses where people are not given adequate soap and water and beds to sleep in and space to distance from each other. So to sort of turn it around and say, it's the migrants fault that there's COVID in the detention centers is, is just so cruel and so wrong. But so often, like the it's the refugees and the migrants who are who are in the public eye, like held responsible for the human rights abuses that are acted against them. While there has been this great upswell in terms of a movement around justice. Um, will things like COVID and the sort of ways in which uh, we become pretty insular uh, mean that it will die out again? Um, And how do we continue to um, 
fan the flames, be part of the movement, grow it to the point where it really does affect systemic change um, in sooner rather than later. You know, I do believe that the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice. I'd just like to be part of those, you know, bending it as fast as possible because there are people who are suffering and dying right now. I mean, that it bends towards justice quickly, but also fully. I think one of the things in the art piece last year was, you know, children being separated from their parents and being put in cages. And there was just a report released last month saying that there are still 666 children who have not been reunited with their parents from the American policies from two years ago. And that the current incoming administration, the Biden administration, has committed to setting up an office to reunite those children. But what they haven't committed to is bringing the parents of those children who have been deported from the United States back to the U.S. and granting them asylum and some offering some sort of compensation and justice for the incredible harm that has been done to their families and to their children through these separations. And so like that's what justice would look like. It would not look like deporting all of these children back to Honduras and Guatemala to be with their parents, which is what it looks like is more likely to happen. are our policies. And this past summer, the Supreme Court of Canada struck down the Safe Third Country Agreement and ruled it as unconstitutional, mostly based on the detention conditions in the United States. And that has is currently awaiting appeal. So until the appeal is heard, the agreement still stands. And I think that it is really upon us as people who live in this country in Canada to advocate to our government and to say that like we need to open our doors more broadly to refugees coming from the United States and to recognize that this is an unconstitutional agreement and to call on them to end their intention to appeal or to end the appeal that's in process and recognize that a new incoming administration is not like the golden ticket. I think there is this belief that the Biden administration is going to just like reverse everything and everything will be fine for refugees and migrants in the United States. But the reality is that the detention facility in Texas that we saw so many pictures of children like behind barbed wire, like that facility was built under Obama. That wasn't a Trump facility and simply reversing some of these terrible initiatives that that Trump's administration enacted is not the same as ensuring an asylum system that is open and is just and is welcoming. Jesus, a son they must hide. 
That was American singer-songwriter Liz Weiss and her song, Refugee King. You can find Liz and links to purchase her music by going to www.lizweiss.com or her Instagram at lizweiss, that's L-I-Z-V-I-C-E. You can also find all these links by going to our show notes at www.shiningwatersregionalcouncil.ca slash justice, where we will also have photos of both the baby Jesus in a cage art piece, as well as Windermere United Church's traveling nativity scene from this year. You can also learn more about the important work of Romero House in supporting refugee claimants in Toronto. And thank you, once again, to Michiko Bankai, Alexa Gilmore, and Jennifer McIntyre 
for spending some time with me in conversation during a busy holiday season. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. We'll be back soon talking about Jesus' call to his first disciples. Until then, take care of yourselves and your neighbors. And remember, we are all neighbors. We'll see you soon. This podcast is brought to you by Shining Waters Regional Council, an administrative grouping within the United Church of Canada. You can find us online at www.shiningwatersregionalcouncil.ca.